Would you turn with me this morning as we continue our rapid dash through Luke to Luke 17. Luke 17. Amazing we've got this far in the book of Luke in a mere 210 sermons, but there it is. We're going to take the next little bit because this is a basically a teaching segment. I don't know if it was a formal sermon. It was more, it looked like kind of an informal teaching segment that uh, had several uh, components to it. And we're going to read it because it actually makes sense taken together. So in starting in verse 1, he said to his disciples, it's inevitable that stumbling blocks come but woe to him through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day, and returns to you seven times, saying, I repent, forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a mustard seed, you would, be, you would say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Which of you, having a slave plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, come immediately and sit down to eat. But will he not say to him, prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you may eat and drink. He does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? So you too, when you do all the things which are commanded you, say, we are unworthy slaves, and we have done only that which we ought to have done. Heavenly Father, thank you again, Lord, for this wonderful opportunity that we have to hear the teaching of our Lord, wonderfully preserved for us, preserved down through generations so that many, many generations over hundreds and now thousands of years have been able to be blessed, taught, reproved, exhorted, encouraged from this little training session that took place with the disciples. Help us, Lord, to have hearts that are prepared to hear, hearts that are prepared to obey immediately when we do hear. Give us ears to hear. Give us a mind to understand and incline our hearts in delight to your word. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in our next section, we have a condensed summary of a teaching time Jesus had with his disciples. I say it was probably not a formal sermon uh, like we would normally uh, kind of expect or how we would envision, because there's apparently some time there where there's some some questions from the floor or comments from the floor. But it is a teaching section. And he had just warned everyone, perhaps particularly the scribes and the Pharisees, about the horrible future that was looming ahead of them unless they repented in Luke chapter 16. What horrifying vistas Jesus gave us into what lies ahead for those who die in their sins. Don't die in your sins. Those who follow faithfully in the footsteps of Jesus will find themselves warning men and women of the consequences of disobedience and delay in view of the atrocious eternal destiny that many, many, uh, most are facing. Well, now Jesus, in our text, turns against to his disciples and gives them a talk on the believer's life within the fellowship of the church. You kind of say it all falls under that umbrella. 
And some of these terms and phrases, Jesus doesn't actually spend a lot of time explaining. And you'll see that so frequently in Scripture. When you get to uh, passages, for example, that speak on eschatology, you'll find uh, places where where, in the, for example, in the book of Revelation, he just kind of said, well, there's a beast that came out of the ocean. You're going, what beast? Where? And, and so people kind of look at that and they go, man, what a, what a tough book. But there's an there's a overriding assumption you need to be operating on. If in the immediate in the text it doesn't say, and this beast is, and the ten horns are, or whatever, understand He's doing it because it's been amply handled and amply explained in passages earlier. And he's just expect, do, I don't have to explain that again. I, I wrote it in the book. It's there. You, so you can understand it. And so there's a little of that happening here today. So there's some phrases here that are not, he doesn't elaborate on incredibly. And he doesn't spend time explaining them. And one of those terms is a one-term descriptor that is translated in most of your texts as the little ones, the little ones, micron in the Greek. And uh, having the discipline of needing to teach through the gospel, uh, John, now Luke, sequentially, has been a great exercise for me because you learn. And learn means ah, you change your position because you were wrong. And uh, I've taught on uh, pa passages like this before, and I go, oh boy, oh boy. But anyway, now maybe I've, uh, I I've learned a little bit. What does the term micron mean? Jesus often taught on a subject in some depth, and then in a matter of weeks or months later, circled around and made reference, remembrance of that lesson again. And again, if the reference is brief, it's usually because he's earlier taught thoroughly on the subject and then frequently since then referenced that body of teaching as a reminder of that which is important and that which is frequently not yet being applied and followed by the disciples evidently. So he keeps on giving reminders. Well, about six months earlier than the date that we're looking at here, which would have been Winter of 30, something like that, winter of 30 A.D., about six months earlier, in the late summer of 29, Jesus had revealed to them that his second coming, his return to set up the kingdom the Old Testament predicted, would be less immediate than they were anticipating. They had some details correct, but not the correct timeline. Jesus told them that just as the scriptures told them he was going to be delivered up to the Gentiles in Jerusalem and be crucified and rise again on the third day. And they'd missed those parts. They'd, they'd got to the parts where Jesus was ruling over the nations with a rod of iron. And they were right. They were right to anticipate that. And we're right to be anticipating that too today. But that's the part they saw. And, and all of the parts where it talks about a suffering Messiah, they just sort of said, yeah, let's take that allegorically, or let's just sort of, I, I don't know, so we'll, we'll just sort of say it, it's ish, right? And they sold those scriptures off at a bit of a discount. Well, uh, their timeline was wrong. Jesus told them that just as the scriptures told, he was going to be delivered to the Gentiles in Jerusalem and be crucified. The disciples, with their flawed understanding of the Old Testament prophecies concerning the Messiah, even rebuked Jesus for suggesting such a thing, Peter being the spokesman. But Jesus began to inform them about the functioning of a thing not seen, not foretold, kept, the word is a mustirian, a mystery, by the Old Testament prophets that there was going to be an ecclesia, a church built by Jesus. They were going to be the ecclesia, ek, out, snatched, where, Jesus, where, where the Lord snatches some out from the crowd, ecclesia. 
And, and so he describes this outsnatching of, of these ones, the beginning of the church. And that would have been probably best categorized in Matthew chapter 16. And from time to time since that, that day described, Jesus began teaching the disciples on how that was supposed to be functioning, what that was going to be looking like. So when we get to chapter 17, we get a section where there was some intense teaching about the church and their role in the church as the original 11. Chapters 18, 17 and 18 may well have taken place all in one day, but if not in one day, at least in rapid succession to right after the transfiguration of Christ. So we have it kind of in a timeline. If you go back for a moment to Luke, or pardon me, Matthew 18, we're going to spend a little time there. Matthew 18. Matthew 18 typically has been sawed into a number of pieces so that it's almost uh, hard to recognize. But Matthew 18 is a sermon. It's, it's a consistent thought all the way through. And all through this sermon, believers, those in the coming church Jesus was going to build, are referred to as either micron, little ones, or pedia. Pedia would be a term of, of a, somebody who had just passed out of babyhood at the beginning, okay? The, the beginning age range for Pedia would be someone who had just passed out of babyhood. And uh, you would think a toddler, or if you want to think of, have something in mind where you just kind of an easy memory aid, think Lydia, okay? So about that age, right? Not, not a baby anymore, kind of rolling and pulling, and, but, but still very vulnerable, right? A toddler. And so the main points, if you wanted to, if we spent some time in Matthew 18, the main points of the sermon would be verses 1 to 4, enter the church. To enter it, you need to humble yourself as a child. Verses 5 to 9, disciples in the church must be treated with the consideration and protective tenderness as a micron, as a pedia child. Verses 10 to 14, disciples must be cared for within the church as you would beloved children. Verses 15 to 20, disciples are to be discipled as you would, beloved children. They need to be discipled. They need to be disciplined. And verse 21 to 35, disciples are to be forgiven as beloved children. So that's the frame of this sermon. So in order to understand our passage, Luke chapter 17, which represents a time where six months after this, he's circling around and referencing it again. We need to have all the thoughts that would have been in the minds of the disciples, again, flooding and flushing through our heads as well. So to understand Luke 17 a bit better, we're going to turn our attention to the first section of the earlier sermon Jesus is referencing. Let's look again at verses 1 to 3. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Um, Interesting that they would be asking that. He had just said a few uh, days earlier, the Son of Man is going to go up to Jerusalem and I'm going to be killed. And, and they weren't getting it. They were still thinking, and there was some appropriateness to it, it wasn't they were dead wrong. They were still thinking that, okay, so Israel is going to be the leader of the entire world. Christ is the Messiah is going to lead over the entire world and all of this is coming and it's just their timeline was wrong. Um, and so they were trying to figure out, they were jostling for position. So who, who's going to be, the, which one of us is going to be the, who's going to be the finance minister? Who's going to be the secretary of defense, etc.? cetera? Uh, you can see that. Um, keep your finger there and let's go to Mark chapter 9, which is a companion passage to this one. Mark chapter 9. Verses 30 to 32, uh, he, he's saying the Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men. And, and then you see in verse 33, they were coming to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he began to question them. What were you discussing on the way? 
So as they're going along to Capernaum, he just told them that, and, and he says, by the way, what were you boys talking about, like, back there? And, and you just got to know something about the Lord. Why would he be asking that? Because he needs to be informed? No, he's like a very sound attorney. He only asks questions that he knows the answer to. And he knows the answers to all of them, right? He says, what were you guys talking about back there? But they kept silent, for on the way they had discussed with one another which one of them was the greatest. They were all having their Muhammad Ali moment, right? Sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last, and servant of all, and taking a child, and so forth. Uh, let's go again. Luke chapter 9. We handled this a little bit back, but we might not be remembering it with quite as much clarity. But verse 46. An argument started among them as to which of them might be the greatest. So evidently they weren't all settled on, no, it's going to be me or it's going to be me. Uh, they were arguing. What a, what a lovely bunch to be around. And, and, and like if, if, if these were people that you had chosen for leadership in the church, there'd be a little element where you wanted to take a brick and just bang your head with it. You know, these are the guys who are going to lead the church. And you're arguing who's the greatest. But Jesus, knowing that they were thinking, what they were thinking in their heart, took a child and stood him by his side. So evidently this toddler that he's uh, taking with him is capable of standing, but quite a young child. And so all the while while he's teaching this sermon, he's keeping this little one in front of them as like a visual reminder. Hey guys, be, be thinking about this one and picturing yourselves in that condition. All right, so... Let's go back to Matthew 18. They're saying, who's the greatest in the kingdom? Verse 2, Matthew 18. And he called a child to himself and set him before them and said, truly... Okay, so we better not do Lydia. Let's do a, a toddler boy because evidently it was a toddler boy. Okay, so picture a, a little toddler boy. All right. He, uh, he set the child, brought the child, called him to himself set him before them, so an ongoing visual aid, and said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So one of the things that we're going to discover is all through this sermon, believers, those in the coming church, Jesus was going to build are referred to as either micron, little ones, or pedia, someone who had just left babyhood, a toddler. The force of this was to treat each other with kindliness and humility rather than the competitive jostling for position and arguing about who is going to be greatest in the kingdom that plagued the pre-Golgotha disciples. And so he says, here's some things you need to do. Number one, be converted. And, and it is in the voice in the Greek that it becomes very clear that that is something that you are a receptor of that someone does to you. Be converted. Permit yourself to be converted. Something done to them, not something they accomplish. You probably saw that one coming. You know, that makes sense, right? That's why... Jesus says he builds the church because they are the ecclesia and he's the one behind the choosing. So he builds the church. But now, he says, be converted and become like a child. All right, so if you guys want to really get this down square, kick off your shoes, start playing in the sandbox, break out the crayons, Disavow any scholarship and learning, just feel and emote. Boy, this verse has been used for all kinds of stuff, right? This verse has been used to, oh, 
you're making this too complicated. You're making me trouble my little head. There's way too many details here, and I have to think, and that can't be right because Jesus said you need to become like little children. So whatever it is, whatever spiritual truth is of any value, it needs to be comprehensible to somebody who's a toddler. And so they say, so that is, works for the dumbing down of, oh, man, you mean I have to think my way? No, no, forget that. Is that what he's teaching? Is, is this a, an abandonment of any kind of scholarship and learning? Just feel. Well, go further. Become like little children, you will not enter the kingdom. Verse 4, whoever then humbles himself as this child. Oh, that's the follow-through of this. Humbles himself as a child. Humble himself to change, humble yourself to change your opinion about yourself. Here's the thing about children, and it would have been very evident as they had this visual aid in front of them of this child. Here are some things that we know about children. Children are utterly dependent on others, right? The very thought of that little toddler that you're picturing in your head, alone, 40 miles in the bush, um, in the Kananaskis country, alone, just fills your heart with terror. You go, oh, no, 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 that's, not, that, that's, a, that's a bad thing. It, it immediately fills our heart with panic, right? Because we know something about children. They need protection. They need provision. That little toddler out there is not going to wield his axe and start you know, dropping trees and making a, a log cabin and, you know, smack the, the bear over the head and use that for your, your the covering for your bed. He, he needs provision. He needs instruction, right? You need, you need to tell a toddler, no, don't go too close to the fire, right? They, they need protection. They need provision. They need instruction. And so he's saying to them, you need to acknowledge your vulnerability, you need to acknowledge your inability. You need to acknowledge your basic ignorance apart from somebody teaching you. Oh, that's a little harder. That would have been, to this group of people who were carving up the, the, the world as their own personal empire, that would have been a pail of cold water in their face. You know something? It's a pail of cold water in our faces as well, of course. Nobody here walked in picturing themselves as vulnerable and as pitiable and as needing of instruction as a toddler. We all kind of think we're a bit more savvy than that, right? Well, he says, do you know something? You need to picture yourself. You need to acknowledge yourself in terms of spiritual things, in terms of your relationship to God, like a toddler. We have a hard time with being told what to do. We have as hard a time to being told what to do as a three-year-old does. We all avoid looking naive, foolish, untaught, and vulnerable. And he says, become as children, meaning humble yourself. We are not the clever ones. Actively alter your opinion of yourself down the scale. Well, verse 5 is a continuation of that thought. It's not some rapid departure. It's a continuation. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. So is that all of a sudden talking about, oh, so in the church we, we need to have some sort of a children's ministry? No, it's, it's a continuation of the thought. Those that are, as John would say later, who have been begotten of the Father, we need to have an immediate affinity and affection for, right? So we need to receive them, and it, it's the same word, it's the same concept of, that was described of Jesus Christ, where the, the Pharisees were using it as, a, as a, an epitaph, they were using it as a... As a Basically a scold. This man receives sinners. You need to be receiving in that way. Um, welcoming those little ones, other ones who are believers. And, and you do it in his name. 
But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. You see where that fits in the sermon. And, and you see now who he's talking about and what the intention is. Um, there's a, there's a, a warning here about causing someone to stumble. Let's go through so we make sure that this is happening. Woe to the world. He's saying outside the, the walls of this church that's coming. Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. The, the world is going to be good at providing stumbling blocks. That stumble blocks, for it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come. But woe to that man through whom the stumbling block comes. What does stumbling block mean? Oh, we'll get to that when we go back to Luke. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands or two feet and be cast into the eternal fire. That's, you remember those. We just came out of that passage, right? If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be cast into the fiery hell. See to it you do not despise one of these little ones, my cron. For I say to you that their angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. For the Son of Man has come to save that which is lost. And then he goes into the whole idea of what do you think if any man has a hundred sheep? And, and what does he say? Verse 14, so it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. Continuation. If your brother sins, go him and show him his fault and so forth. Um, and again, it's talking about that relationship in the, in the body and, and how things are supposed to be handled. So, what is, the, what is being taught about here? Um, it's talking about people who now have come and they are micron, they are pedia. They've been given the right to become what? The children of God, right? Children of God. The teaching, this teaching during this whole time, Jesus freely goes back and forth from a simile. This is like, you're like children, to a metaphor, you are children. In this extended illustration with Jesus keeping a child on his knee to drive home the point. So again, these are people who believe. These are people who are in the world, but they have believed. You know something? In the days after that sermon, Jesus kind of, again, reinforced it. Uh, just slightly after this, turn, if you would, to uh, John chapter 13. John chapter 13. We'll see that after this point in time, he uses this phrase rather frequently. John 13, verse 33. Now let's start in verse 31. Therefore, when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorifying, is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will immediately and will glorify him immediately. He says, little children, I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, now I will say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Why does he call them little children? Hey, you gang of toddlers, I'm not going to be here forever. No, it, it's not that tone. It, it is a tone of affection. But it is a tone where he's reinforcing this idea. You know some Little children, little children. In fact, uh, Another one that's really interesting is uh, go to John 21. This is post, uh, the, after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, uh, during that time where he is appearing to the disciples. John chapter 21, verse 4. But when the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach, yet the disciples did not know it was Jesus so Jesus said to them, children, do you have any, you don't have any fish, do you? Hey, you gang of toddlers, you, don't, you didn't catch anything, did you? Right? Um, he's, not, he's not using it as a term of derision, but it is a term of remembrance where you're reminding. 
And, and it should have just immediately clicked. Here's this guy a little bit too far away, can't quite see who it is. But he uses that phrase, little children. Oh, I've heard that before. I know who this is. Little children, you don't have any fish, do you? John picked up on that. I circled, go ahead and do that sometime. I circled all the places in John where he talks about little children. Starts in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. I've written these things unto you, little children, that you, that you don't sin. And, and there's about nine other places where he says, little children, little children. And at the end he says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Peter said that too. Actually, let's turn to that one. First Peter, you can see the disciples picked up on this thread as, as in their teaching as well because it's, it's a valuable thing that we need to be kind of keeping in our heads. Um, verse 13 of First Peter chapter 1, Therefore prepare your minds for action, keep sober in spirit, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts, which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Okay, so now we have a bit of a backdrop, and now we know who he's referring to. So let's go back to our main passage which is in Luke chapter 17. Again, he's referencing the sermon that was done about six months earlier and frequently revisited since then. So he says to his disciples, it's inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to him through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. And this verse is frequently now being employed is as a response to what's happening in various libraries here and there. And while I am sympathetic to the idea that those actions bring about the wrath of God, that's not what this verse is teaching. And, and even for a good cause, misinterpreting the word of God is a bigger problem than using the wrong verse for the wrong occasion and, you know, putting a headlock on it and trying to make something, it say something that it doesn't say. So that's not particularly what this is saying. Let's find out what it says. First of all, he says, it is important that he says it's inevitable that stumbling blocks come. And it is our word, scandalon, and in this case, scandala. Um, and it was used in two um, contexts, depending on the context. One would be where there's a, a, a rock that juts out that was unexpected on the path and you trip on it, okay? And the odd sidewalk that you've seen has one of those. You're kind of going along and if they haven't painted it, orange or something like that, someone like me will come along and do a face plant. So it's used in that context, but it's also used very effectively as the trigger stick or the bait of a trap. As a young man, this is so politically incorrect, but anyway, as a young man, I was taught how to trap, okay? And, and so for those of you who are kind of curious, I'll, I'll give you the lowdown on how to do a little bit of trapping, okay? Um, lynx. Um, they actually have very beautiful fur. They're wonderful for keeping mankind warm. I'll just leave it there. But anyway, if you ever wanted to trap a lynx, what you do is you need a distraction. You need a distraction. And one that works beautifully is just in an old brush pile or whatever, you hang a little piece, single piece of flagging tape, or better yet, the wing of a chicken. And it just sort of twists a little bit in the wind, twists a little bit in the wind, 
And the lynx, who is normally a very wary sort of a creature, will come along and, and I, he's as curious as a cat. Okay, he looks at this thing and he gets a little bit mesmerized by it. And he walks under and then if you take the line of sight from your, where you put the wing and you move back about six inches and you put your Victor number two, all of a sudden he will put his foot on that round little pad in the middle that pushes down and all of a sudden Kitty is staying place in one place for a while. Kitties like that are visually, you can, you can visually trick them. Coyotes and foxes, I know there are some here who are uh, losing chickens to foxes there's a, and, and coyotes, there's a way to do it. They, are, they, they do it by smell, okay? What you do is you take a chicken, which they're interested in, you need to kind of boil your gloves in, in some pine tar or something like that so you don't leave your own scent, but dig a bit of a hole, put the chicken down there, that's what they would do because they like eating it boxes particularly when it's a little bit high and then you put a little bit of covering on it, a little bit of dirt and, uh, and then you put your trap and then a little bit of covering and a little bit of dirt and, and then the fox comes along and he smells something and everything looks legit because if a fox the chicken he'd have buried it and so there's this and, and the smell is tempting and he starts to dig after and all of a sudden he hits the little trigger stick, the scandalon, and he's staying put for a little while until you can undo the trap and let him loose, right? Or whatever. Anyway, that's how the term is being used. The, it's the trap. It is the trigger stip, it, stick. It is the, the, the bait of the trap. You've seen some of that around, right? Walk down the mall. Walk down the mall and make a mental note. How many seconds as you're walking down at a regular pace through the mall will you see visually scandalon, the trap, the sin bait? Usually, it is actually engineered that you won't walk for more than 15 seconds without seeing another sin bait, another sin bait. You won't listen to the radio for more than 10 or 15 seconds without another sin bait, another sin bait, or a movie. It's factored in, it's deliberate, it's deliberate. And here, Jesus says, actually, it's impossible that these things will not come. You go, why, why impossible? Why, why expose us to that at all? Why not, as soon as we get saved, just sort of hit the button and, we, and, and we're gone? We're out of this world that has all this sin bait. And more importantly, we get freed of this robe of flesh that kind of likes the smell of, kind of likes the sight of the sin bait. Why not just pull us out? Jesus is saying, do you know something? That's not happening. I'm keeping you here. He, he says, for example, he says, I, I, uh, I'm, you're going to have to mix with sinners who themselves can be forms of sin bait. And he said, you're going to be mixing with, with sinners. And, and the only way to avoid that is, to, is to, to take you out of this world, but I'm not going to do that. He said, but here's what I want you to be careful of. Be careful of people who are living lives where they have not repented of their sins, so now their sin define who they are. Their sin is their identity, and they profess to be believers. Don't hang with those people, Right? But he says, you, I'm not taking you out of the world. And so there's going to be sin bait all around you. You can't go deep enough into the jungle that there are no sin sticks. There are no trap sticks to sin somehow. Why? 
because the world lays in the sway of the evil one. It's a calculated maneuver for God to keep us here rather than escort us directly to heaven. And with the temptation, though, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, he makes a way of escape. They are learning devices for his paideia. They are conditioning, they are strengthening devices for his paideia, his micron, that he carefully governs our exposure to. He's not tempted with evil. He doesn't tempt any man. But he permits scandala that we could walk away from. He knows that we at this moment in time, can walk away from. We could avoid. We could overcome that act on our flesh's lingering appetite for sin that we're supposed to be putting to death. Interesting, I've had often Christians come to me and they said, there's got to be something wrong with my salvation. Maybe some of you are here like that. You're going, I, I don't know if I'm really saved. Well, why? Oh, you wouldn't believe the things I'm tempted with in my head. You wouldn't believe the temptations and the power of the temptation that's coming out. I don't know if I'm saved. I feel a mighty pull to sin. In fact, I had one chap say, you know, it would shock you to know what I'm still tempted with. To which I smiled and said, nope. No. He says, but I caught myself contemplating a really horrifyingly, grossly embarrassing sin. Yeah. Yeah. That's not indicating that there is necessarily a lack of conversion. Oh, it could be. But not normally, because if that's happening and, and you're feeling a dread of it, that's, that's saved area, Right? We talked about that in Romans chapter 7. That's the, that's the response of a saved person, not an unsaved person. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. Actually, let's re review that one again. You should have it highlighted or something in your scripture, in your text. Better yet, memorized. Verse, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. Uh, people, all people, all believers everywhere are being tempted with sin. Yeah, but not as much as I am. You don't know that. You don't know that. But, and God is faithful. And faithful in what respect? who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. Whatever temptations are coming to you are carefully metered and monitored as to type, time, timing, duration, strength, all of that. And he says, but with the temptation will provide, meaning the temptation was something that was permitted allowed by God, but also there will be a way of escape also that you will be able to endure it. That doesn't mean that you will cakewalk by it. It means that he is trying to build up endurance in you. So, God is not sin bait. He does not manufacture sin bait. Satan does. He does not manufacture the allure, the pull that sin bait has on our soul. Our own flesh's sinful desire does that. But God does put us in, or rather keeps us in territory, where there is sin bait. All the way around you, everywhere, there are traps. And when he's done here, he's going to say, be on your guard. Be alert. The world he has us in has sin bait. 
God does not scrab, grab us by the scruff, take us to heaven, where there's no temptation to sin on the outside and no sinful appetites on the inside. I would say with the saints of all ages, the sooner the better for that. But that's not my call. He keeps us here and he says, it's impossible that there would not be sin bait here. And until we die and leave this robe of flesh, God does not take away our muscle memory for the allure of, the taste for, every sin in our life. Sometimes people get a little discouraged because they'll hear a testimony, I got saved and immediately God took away my, my desire for this or that. Is that true? Well, might be. Maybe in his great grace he did that. But there will be nobody who stands and says, and I got saved and God took away all my desire for all sin. That's why I'm sinlessly perfect today. Nobody goes, not, not unless they need their head examined or a few sermons poked at them. Um, God doesn't take away our desire. He doesn't take, we still have that lingering, but careful, and we, we need to be more precise in our thinking. We don't have a sin nature. If you're a believer, you have a new nature. A new nature that's somehow stuffed into this body of flesh that still likes sin. That's, that's, our, that's our problem. Okay? So, he's not sin bait. He doesn't manufacture their allure. Our flesh is sinful, desired as that. But God keeps us where there is sin bait. Temptation here, folks, temptation is not sin. Sin is sin. We're so familiar with the frequency of our failure that when temptation comes and we fall frequently, that we wrongly conclude that to be tempted is to fall. Just give it a minute. Right? But Jesus was tempted and yet, what? Without sin. To be tempted is not to sin. To be tempted is inevitable. That's coming. You say, I got so angry, I could throttle him. Oh no, what's wrong with me? Wasn't that all supposed to be taken away when I became a believer? No, it's inevitable that stumbling blocks come. If you, believer, are not fighting and wrestling against sin... Shame on you. Because there will be some areas where you are needing to fight and you are needing to wrestle. And if you stand before me and say, no, all the fight's gone. I, I know some things about you. Either you don't know enough scripture or you don't know you. One of the two. But God, it's perfectly consistent for him to say at the same time, woe to the source. Woe to the source. God still has his perfect right to bring judgment and wrath on the sources, the manufacturers of sin bait. He says in Matthew chapter 18, woe to the world because of the sin bait it brings. Let's parcel that out a bit. Woe to the advertising agencies. Seriously, woe to them. Woe to the film producers, the governing authorities that urge sufferers to kill themselves. Woe to them. Woe to the clubs and the associations that specifically define themselves by a sin they are actively promoting. Woe to them. Woe to the companies that follow and succumb to all this mess by joining the parade of wickedness. Woe to the groups of parents that fawn after the affirmation the wicked media provides and put wind in the sails of the wickedness. Going back to what we talked about earlier in the sermon, there are people, and, and they, by their own profession, at least some of them say they're coming for our children. But 
they, they say they, they're there because they are promoting a sin. Woe to them. And there are government agencies and local government agencies that give them a venue. Woe to them. But, but they would be there doing their thing and, and it would be absolutely empty. Except for the media that gives them a boost. And, and they, the place would still be empty if it weren't for a whole whack of parents who are going, hey, we get all kinds of positive affirmation and positive attention if we take our kids here. Woe to the lot of them. Woe to the lot of them more specifically as they are trying to gun for the children of believers. That's more important. Woe to them more specifically as they are butting their head up against the church. Um, man, when has there been a time where sinners have not been teaching their kids to sin? That's always been. But when they try and export, force their way in, forcing that sin in on believers, woe to them. Woe to people who are in leadership in churches, in churches, who are probably not believers, who are actively bringing in to their church, which is probably mostly unbelievers, but there could be some believers there, and pushing them and encouraging them towards sin. God says, woe to them. Why? Why woe? Why would it be better, as he describes here, why would it be preferable for them if they had not, it, it, that a millstone, and the millstone he refers to here is not the little one that the little mama in her little house is, is doing and grinding a little bit of grain. This is one that's big enough that it needs to be um, operated with a mule, literally operated with a mule or a donkey. It would be better that that would be chained to them around their neck, nice, nice neck ornament there, and dropped into the sea. You, you, get, you get the mafia burial. Why would it be better that that would happen to them? Because as people are engaging in sin and they have more time to engage in sin, they're storing up wrath. What does that look like? Chapter 16. That's what it looks like. And so in that case, if, if that's how that life is going, if that's how that life is vectoring, it would be better that that life was short. than have a whole lifetime of the wrath of God to harvest. Why does he say that? Because of the realities of Hades. But chapter 17 is a warning Jesus is directing to the disciples as well as to the world. He's actually directing it to future leaders of the church. Whoa. Better to have a millstone big enough that requires donkey power to operate chained to your neck and you be executed mafia style than to live long enough to be the cause of sin bait for a believer. That's for us. How could a believer be the agent of sin bait for another believer. Wow, lots of ways. Just be a bad example. And your bad example becomes a, uh, an emboldenment. It becomes a, an alibi for someone else. Where formerly they would say, Oh, well, that, that, uh, that behavior is clearly outside the bounds of Christian behavior. Big old, but, but Billy's doing it. He's a believer. Bad example. Selfish use of liberty. A selfish use of liberty. Taking a weaker, younger believer to a place of horrible temptation for him. Even though you think you can walk away from it. Did, did you hear that? 
It's not like, ah, that could be a bad call. That's maybe not wise. It would be better, why? Because you're going to heaven. It would be better that you got took home early rather than do that once. Really, this passage should be the occasion where it causes an incredible fear of doing that to each other in the body of Christ. It's what it's intended to do. Hypocrisy. Saying one thing, living another, that's a sin bait. Treating a fellow believer with contempt, dressing in a way that makes the church no longer a safe haven for the eye gate, flirting, trying to gain the admiring fleshly attention of fellow believers by how you conduct yourself, how you dress, how you talk. Constantly making them feel so stupid and hopeless. Insisting that they conform to your own manufactured impossible standards. Fathers provoking to anger. Employers threatening workers. Spouses defrauding physically what they were, they covenanted at the altar and what God commands of married couples. He makes that clear. Don't do it. You place the spouse under heightened what? Temptation. Don't do that. Spouses failing to provide and kindle and nourish companionship. Same thing. They're commanded to do that. Failing to provide and protect. Or even the disinterested neglect described in verse 3. Failing to help a brother caught in a sin habit, which we're going to talk about next time we get together, Lord willing. Again, the threat for a genuine believer is not Hades. All, for a believer, all of the guilt of sin has been handled by Jesus Christ. You have as a continuing permanent benefit the righteousness of Christ. So there's no thing where all of a sudden, okay, that was too far. But there are consequences. There are consequences. It's having a loss of reward having legitimately earned spiritual accomplishments wiped out at the Bema seat of Christ. It could be a loss of qualification for Christian service, as Paul feared. He says, I, I buffet my body, I give myself a black eye, lest I be a dacamos, disapproved for further service. You don't want to do that. I, I, I hear from time to time, Horrible story, just fear-inducing stories of good men who preach good sermons, who fall. And, and if they do what's proper, they never get in a pulpit again. And, and, and that's, that's horrifying. Now what do you do? Sell life insurance? Serious. Horrifying. It could be a loss of qualification for Christian service. Better to go home early, even by a horrible death, and live long enough to bring shame to the name of Christ, shame to the fellow children of God, and have my sin become an agent of permission granting for another's sin and for their compromised productivity, purity, and joy. Verse 3 is a standalone command Be on your guard. Or the good old English equivalent, beware. Be on your guard. The ripple effect of being a stumbling block, a source of sin bait, is so profound that Paul said that if eating something or drink, drinking something that would be permissible to him would embolden a weaker brother to violate 
their conscience, he would not eat or drink while the world stands. Well, that's a bit of an overreact. No, it isn't. Well, why would Paul say that? He read this passage, among others. Romans 14, 20 to 23. Read it yourself. 1 Corinthians 8, 7 to 13. He says in that passage, he said, it's even better if you are at, you know, gone to somebody's place with a weaker brother and, and they are offering food offered to idols and they say, oh, by the way, this is food that was offered to Zeus as you're eating it. You are also participating in the, the worship of Zeus. For the sake of that weaker brother, risk offending your, your host and say, I can't eat it. And we would get that backwards. We would say, well, he'll get over it. You know, we'll just give him a head of noogie and we'll say, yeah, he'll, he'll, he'll get by. But, but don't offend the unsaved host. No. Show greater consideration for your weaker brother than anybody in the world. Risk by far insulting an unsaved person than causing a younger brother or sister to violate their conscience and sin. It's that important. Be on your guard. Satan plays a wicked game, of course, with regard to sin. <clears throat> the world places before our eyes, before our ears, our minds, sin bait continually. Right? If we take the bait, our conscience is, or at least should be, tortured. But we know better now. We don't just stay there feeling tortured. Quickly get back up and go and sin no more. Repent, acknowledge, forsake. And then keep on walking. That's the life of a believer. But Satan does this other thing. If, if we fall, you go, ah, I gotcha. If we don't fall, he, he swaps it a little bit. He says, if we do not take the bait, for young believers or poor students, thank you, we can be tortured with the fact that we're being tempted with this horrifying sin. What kind of a deviant are you anyway? Verse 1. There's going to be temptations. It's inevitable, it's impossible that there wouldn't be. You are a believer in the world. Nothing happened if the sin was resisted. In fact, something good happened. Something good happened. You just got that much stronger, that much more conformed and confirmed in Christ-likeness. You say, but you don't understand, Pastor. I just wanted to throttle the guy. Did you throttle the guy? Like, should we be getting you legal counsel? He goes, no, I didn't throttle the guy. But I wanted to. Oh. So did you throttle him? No. No, I didn't throttle him. Oh, good. Score one. Serious? Yeah, score one. You, you didn't fall. You resisted. Um, if you allow your mind to be dwelling on that and, and visualizing your sin, okay, well, that, that's, that's sin in itself. But the, the, the reaction to sin, and, and it, if it is shutting it down, that's what you're supposed to be doing. And, and the response is not, wow, what kind of a monster am I that I would be tempted with that? You're going to be tempted with sin. So, um, if you're here today and, and you're saying, I, I'm a believer, I thought I was, but I'm still having this horrible wrestle with sin, go back and read Romans chapter 7 and realize that you're in pretty good company with people like, oh, the Apostle Paul. Hope that's an encouragement to you. One more encouraging bit here. The term micron, little ones, and pedia. They're terms that remind us really of who we are, but they're not terms of insulting belittlement. They're terms of endearment. 
when, when, when John says, for example, my little children, it'd be like you were Scottish. And if Mika was here, he would probably confirm that. It'd be like he was saying to him, me wee bairns, you know. My little, it, it, it's a term of endearment. Am I right? Close? Okay, all right. I got, I got one Scotsman who's ready to go for that. Okay. It's a term of endearment. There are terms that affirms God's wonderful, awe-inspiring commitment and attachment to us since we were made union with Christ. They're terms of endearment and eternal certainty and security. Knowing the truthfulness, the dependability, the unchangeableness of God, the strength and the breadth of his commitment to his own children. Get happy enough about that, that you're a child, and settled enough about that to praise him this morning about what the future holds for you if you do not die in your sins. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this warning that we would be on our guard. Thank you again, Lord, for the reminder that you gave to grown men and you called them paideia. And, and you wrote in your word to us and you remind us, little children. Thank you, Lord, for the security Thank you, Lord, for the affirmation that that furnishes us with. But also thank you, Lord, for the renewed warning. We need to be on our guard and we're not self-reliant. Help us, Lord, to be particularly gracious toward those who are of like precious faith. Help us, Lord, to be treating them like they really were fellow children in the body of Christ who were handpicked, chosen out specifically by name by our Lord who's building the church. Help us, Lord, to be agents of Christ-likeness and never agents of depreciation, agents of sin in the lives of of those who are so precious to you. Do that, we would pray, by your Holy Spirit, for your glory and our joy, in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. I'll call on our worship crew.